You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit stonegate-church.com. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 is where we are. I hope your turkey was good and your Thanksgiving was great, all that good stuff. Okay, so if you if you've Stumbled in on us, gospel plus mission. This is, this is where we are. Working through, kind of raising up this biblical theme that, um, God is a missionary God. He's a sending God. And when He saves, He sends His people. So those, those that are saved by the gospel are now sent with the gospel. Those who hear and respond to the gospel become heralds of the gospel. This is what we're talking about. When the gospel explodes in a person's heart, it leads them to outward movement. It leads them toward the mission of God. Okay, so this is where we're going. Now, I want to back up because um, it, it's been a couple of weeks since, since we kind of started this and just kind of give you a recap of where we've been. So week one, we started, and this was the goal of week one, is just to pose the problem. And here's what we said basically in week one. is that The problem is, is that the people of God are not on the mission of God. As a general rule in our area, churches just like ours, and we'll even throw our church in there, the people of God are not on the mission of God. There's a disconnect between the gospel in us and the gospel flowing out of us. You say, okay, well, how, you know, that's, that's a bold statement. Why, why do you say that? Um, I'll never forget this moment when I was like, I was probably fourth, fifth grade, something like that. I mean, I was a little punk fourth grader, right? I mean, that guy. And uh, I, I went out to the deep freeze. It was my middle brother and I went out to the deep freeze to grab something. It's in the garage. And my dad just kind of, you know, joyfully playing a little joke, locks the door behind us. So we get back to the door. We've got whatever we've got in the deep freeze. I go to turn the door knob and it's locked. And my response was out loud, that son of a mm. And my dad opens the door. That was a terrible moment for a fourth or fifth grader, right? Okay, now I want you to think about what happened in that moment, though. My lips and my life betrayed that my heart was not in alignment with my dad's. And this is where I think the people of God are, where we are. Our lips and our life betray the fact that we are not centered on the mission of God, that we have got mission drift. That a thousand other competing missions have kind of wormed their way into the central spot. And so now the mission of God just kind of this peripheral add-on that we kind of do when we get time. As opposed to the all-encompassing central part of our life that everything else flows through. This is the problem. Now we illustrated this just by asking questions. So, So we just listed four questions. Number one. When is the last time or have you ever experienced, had the joyful experience of God using your life to display the gospel, your lips to declare the gospel for the salvation of a friend, of a coworker, of a neighbor? And here's what is so crazy about this question. It is so abnormal for people to answer yes. Now, I mean, can we agree that that's a problem? If we are a sent people, this is the problem when we're not seeing this happen. Okay, now we drilled down one step further. We said, okay, so let's just take the supernatural saving thing out. Let's just go one step further. Has there been, let's say in the last month, have you had gospel conversations with people who don't know Jesus? Two months, three months, six months, year, ever, right? I mean, so, and we're just trying to make this point that it's so abnormal for people like you and I to have conversation with people who don't know Jesus. That is an abnormal thing for us to do that. And it's a problem when that becomes abnormal. This is, this is the problem we're trying to pose here. Okay, to take this one step further. It's not only do we not speak the gospel over the last, let's say, month, two months, three months, whenever. Have you had people into your home that you are inviting into your life that don't know Jesus? See, this is, this is where our problem lies for a lot of us. We don't know people who don't know Jesus. We have walled up our life and just kind of centered our life around those people who, who think like us, believe like us, eat like us, smell like us, look like us, do things like us. 
We've walled ourselves up. See, this, the, one of the dangers, the longer you become a Christian, is that you just surround yourself with people who are Christians. That's a danger. That's not a good thing. We're always to relieve these, uh, to, to make sure these relational spots exist for people who don't know Jesus. Okay, then we press it one step further, though. We just ask this question. Do you consistently and fervently and passionately pray for people who do not know Jesus? One, two, three, maybe your neighbors, co-workers. I mean, where your heart just pleads with God on their behalf that God would save them. And as a general rule, people don't do it. So, so this is the problem we're trying to expose. That there is a gap between what the gospel should produce in us and where a lot of us are. There's a gap between what the gospel does and how we are living. Okay, now, now I just want to just remind you of this. It's okay that this is where we are, but it's not okay for us to stay there. This is what we're doing this series for and why we're really trying to lift this theme out of the Bible is because we want to make sure we're moving in this direction. Okay, the second week, we just spent time working through 2 Corinthians 5 talking about how this missionary God that reconciles all things to himself in Jesus has sent you, has entrusted to you this ministry, this message of reconciliation, that you have become an ambassador that you have become a witness of God. You've become a missionary of God. So this is what you are. This is a gospel identity for you. This is who Christ has made you. He has made you a missionary, a sent one. This is who you are. Okay, now think about missionary. We tried to make sure this is clear in our mind, that it's not a location issue. Missionary is not a, I go over there. Missionary has nothing to do with location. It has everything to do with your primary occupation in life has nothing to do with with where you live, has everything to do with what you're living for. And here's what we're saying. The gospel should produce in us a life that reflects we are on the mission of God to get the gospel out to the nations and to our neighbors. Okay, this is where we've been. Now, we're going to 2 Corinthians 4, and here's where we're going today. Is we want to talk about a missionary's lips. I just want to give just practical encouragement and prodding for us to start speaking the gospel, to get the gospel flowing from our mouths. Okay, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1 says this, Therefore, having this mystery uh, by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Okay, now Paul is about to show us our condition in verse 3 and 4. I, just want, to, I want you to see this. Verse 3 and 4, he's going to say, this is your condition apart from Christ. This is who you are apart from Christ. This is what's happening to you apart from Christ. Okay, so, so watch this. Here's our condition, verse 3 and 4. And even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled only to those, you circle, or underline this word, who are perishing. Verse 4, in their case, the God of this world has underlined this word, blinded the minds of the unbelievers, underline that word, unbelievers, to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So here's what Paul's saying. Here's our condition apart from Christ. Our condition is that we are perishing. Okay, when you think perishing in the Bible, there's two ways that the the word could be used. Uh, Matthew 8 uses the word this way. Jesus is asleep in a boat with his disciples. A storm comes and the boat is literally being beaten to death. The disciples are afraid they're going to die. And Jesus is asleep. You know a sleeper like that? Just sleep through anything, right? They go down into the bottom of this, this boat and they're... How can you be sleeping in this, right? I mean, what is your problem? And then here's what they ask him. Don't you know that we're perishing? We're about to die out here. Okay, so this is perishing number one. It's it's this idea of a physical death. Okay, there's another way that perishing can be used in the scriptures though. This is the idea, you'll see this in John chapter 10, verse 28. I give them eternal life, they will never perish. Okay, perish there is more than physical death. John 3.16, the same thing. Whoever believes 
in him will not perish but have everlasting life. That perish is talking about something completely different than physical death. This is talking about eternal and spiritual death. This is talking about eternally being cut off from the presence of God. And Paul's saying in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 3, apart from Christ, people are perishing. There is a real place called hell where real people go that rebel against a real God. And if you're a follower of Jesus in here, that should break our hearts and make us plead with God on behalf of the perishing. Okay, so this is our condition. We're, we're, we're perishing. Okay, now in verse 4, he's going to give kind of this progression of problems that we have. Verse 4. Okay, now start from the middle of verse 4, and we're going to work our way backwards. So the first phrase ends with unbelievers. We're going to work our way back. So if, if you were to ask Paul, why are, why are these people perishing? What, what's the problem? Why perish? Here's, I think, what he would say in the verse 4, last word. They're unbelievers. They're not believing in God. Okay, now that... That word believe is a big, massive biblical word. Our culture has just kind of robbed that. So when people talk about believing in Jesus now, it has no semblance of what the Bible refers to when it says believe. Belief biblically is is big. It's not just agreement with facts. See, that's what our people, people in our culture, people in our church will think it is. It's an agreement with these facts about what Jesus has done. That is not belief or faith in the Bible. Belief in the Bible is, it, it starts with an agreement with facts, but then it is, it is trusting in them. It's treasuring them. This is biblical belief. It is looking at Jesus as supremely valuable, looking at Jesus as trustworthy and giving your life to him. This is belief. So he's saying, here's the problem with people. They don't believe in God. They are living apart from God. They have rejected his reign and rule and they have set up their own. They have stiff-armed God. They don't want God. They're, they're not believing in him. So the problem is not behavior. The problem is belief. So he says, why perish? They're, they're not believing. Well, why aren't they believing? Why don't they believe in the gospel? The answer, back up a couple of words. They're blinded. So Paul's saying the reason they don't believe is because they can't see the beauty of the gospel and the wonder of who Christ is. This is the reason men and women do not become Christians. They they can't see that they're blinded to all that God has done for them. They're blinded to the reality that Christ is a treasure. They're blinded to the reality that Christ is everything. They're blinded to the reality that Christ is the solution for every problem of their heart. Okay, th- this is the problem that we're blinded. Now, if you were to ask Paul, okay, so, so why are they blinded? Back up a couple of words here. Because the, the God of this world is blinding. Because of Satan. This is what Satan is doing. Okay, now, now think about what this does to us as we think about being a missionary people who, who pray for and plead for the conversion of people, that God would save people. Conversions happen in the context of spiritual warfare. When you begin to live as a sent Christian, as a sent person, as a missionary, sent by God on the mission of God, when you start to embrace that and to live in that, you walk into the trenches of warfare, where the metal flies, where flesh is torn, and where the enemy is really active. That's what you walk into. And this is what Satan is doing. This is what the God of this world is doing. He is blinding the mind of unbelievers. He's, he's veiling the gospel. He's masking the gospel. He paints it in drab and dreary colors. So when they look at it, it's not compelling. It, it doesn't look good to them. It doesn't look reasonable. It doesn't look like it's worth their life. It doesn't look valuable. This is what Satan is doing. So, so this is our problem. We're perishing. We've got this progression of issues. Okay, now, now I want you to skip to verse 6 and, and watch the solution. Watch the cure for this condition. Verse 6 says this. We're going to come back to verse 5. Verse 6 says this. For God who said, light, let light shine out of darkness. This God who said that, he has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. Here's what Paul's saying. We are blinded. But God has sent light. Our cure is that God is active. 
That he has shown light into our hearts. That he has put this light in us. Okay, this is the same thing. Like this is Ephesians 2 saying this. That you're dead in your sin, but God comes and makes you alive. Dead is it dead has this idea of not only that you're living apart from God, but that you're unresponsive to God. You don't want God, but God acts for you. God does something in you when it says he shines in your heart. This would be the same thing, just different terminology when Jeremiah says that he will rip out of you this heart of stone and put in you a heart of flesh. This is the idea. He removes these scales from your eyes. He cures your blindness and my blindness so we can see the wonder of Jesus and the beauty of the gospel. Okay, now when we see that, we receive it. When we see who Christ is, we look at him with different, with a different view. See, when God shines in our hearts, he gives us sight to see All that Christ is, and he gives us these taste buds where we want him, where we like him. We have an appetite for him. See, this is what, this is what God does in the life of every Christian. If you're a believer in this room, there was a moment where you went from death to life, blindness to sight, where you saw Jesus with fresh eyes and with a fresh heart, a new created heart that wanted Jesus. That happened. And only God can do that. And when that happens in us, here's what people do. We receive Jesus. We place our faith in the gospel, in Christ, and we're saved. Okay, so we see verse 6 is God works and we are saved. Now, I want you to look what's smashed in between. Blind and perishing people and a God who saves. Verse 5. This is God's means. How does God go about shining in the heart of people? How does he go about rescuing and redeeming and saving, bringing dead people to life? How does he do that? Verse 5. For what we circle this word, this is it, proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. This is God's chosen means. I have no idea why he chose to do it this way. If you and I were God we would probably choose a different way. But God chose his people to declare his gospel. This is how people are saved. So so see what's happening here. Verse 3, people are perishing. They're held captive and swayed to Satan. They're blinded in their unbelief. Verse 6, God shines in their heart, redeems, rescues. They place their faith in him. Smashed in between these two realities are the people of God proclaiming Jesus Christ saves. Here's the implication for us. If we want to see people saved, it means we have to learn how to speak the gospel. That we have got to get the gospel on our lips personally. See, this is what Paul's saying in Romans chapter 10 when he says this. Verse 13 in Romans chapter 10. Anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Great, glorious, big verse. God saved. They respond in faith. They call out to him and they're redeemed. They're rescued. But then he goes on to say this. Okay, well, how are they going to call if they don't believe in him? And how are they going to believe if they don't hear? And how are they going to hear if no one preaches? And it's a rhetorical question. Here's what Paul's saying. They will not call upon the name of the Lord. Your neighbor, your sons and daughters, your family, people in our city will not call upon the name of the Lord apart from the people of God declaring God's beautiful gospel to them. This is God's means to shine light in the people's hearts. Okay, so so here's what I want to do. I want to take that and I'll just back up kind of from Paul's life in this passage and just look at kind of the panoramic picture of Paul, who he is, what motivates and drives him. And I want to just draw some implications out for what this means for gospel telling in you and I. Okay, so, so, and I, and I want to preface this again by saying that I, I am not a tour guide on this. I'm a fellow traveler. I'm with you on this. We all need the conviction of the Spirit and the empowering of the Spirit when it comes to this issue of getting the gospel on our lips. 
Okay, so I, I hope this is encouraging and can be beneficial for, for God to use for you. Okay, so first thing, talking about gospel declaration. If we want people saved, we've got to get the gospel on our lips. Here's where gospel declaration starts. Gospel declaration starts with a deep love for Jesus. See here, I think this is where people get confused. A lot of people think that what they need is a new method or a new technique. That is not what you and I need primarily. You can have the greatest methods and the greatest techniques and never talk about Jesus. We have them. So what you primarily need is not that. What you primarily need is not a, like a, like a persuasive sermon that convinces you to go share the gospel. You don't need me to guilt you. That will last about 3.26 seconds. Then you're over, right? Okay, so that's not what you need. Now, this is how most evangelistic sermons sounds. Like when, when it comes to trying to get people to speak the gospel, it sounds like this is why you need to do it. This is how you do it. So go do it. But you don't need, that, that's not the primary need of your heart when it comes to getting the gospel on your nip, lips. This is the primary need of your heart is for your heart to be consumed with captivated by, fixated on, obsessed with, gripped by, in pursuit of Jesus. That's what you need more than anything else. You can have the greatest methods and it does not matter if your heart is not gripped by Jesus. If your heart does not love Jesus. Loving Jesus with everything in you is the prerequisite for you sharing your faith. For you declaring the gospel. This is it. I mean, th this is where it starts. Now, think about this in the life of Paul. And one of my favorite passages that he writes is in, in Philippians 3, where he basically is going to say this. All that I could count as gain, all these earthly accolades, I consider them as nothing. I mean, I count them as nothing for the sake of Christ. And then he goes on to say, I have lost all of these things, and I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ. This is the heart of Paul. He is a man captivated by Jesus. His heart is monopolized by God. He loves God. He is captivated. He is fixated. He is obsessed with Jesus. God looms large in his heart. And that's why Jesus flows freely from his lips. So I want you to see this connection. That, that the gospel in you, God in you, is the thing that, that, that makes God come out of you. Okay, I, the, the other day, I've got a friend, J.R. Vassar. He's a church planter in uh, New York City. And he tweeted, this has been several months ago, he tweeted this question. He asked this. He said, why are Christians negligent, hesitant, reluctant, and even resistant to speak the gospel. Now, let me ask you that question. Why is that? Negligent? I mean, why, why are you negligent, hesitant, kind of resistant to it? Why, why is that? Steve Timmis, another, another guy that I've gotten to know over the last year, he quickly retreat, uh, retweeted, gosh, this back. This was his response. He said this, here's why, because we Christians are not truly, madly, and deeply besotted with Jesus. Okay, now we're Americans. We don't use words like besotted, right? I mean, you get drug out back and beaten for words like that. <laughs> But, but this guy's English. He can get away. He's got a thick English accent to go with that. So he can get away with this, right? So he uses this word besotted. I had to look that up. Here's what it means. It means to be intoxicated with, captivated by, to be obsessed with something. And he's saying, this is the reason we're so negligent. We're so hesitant. We're so reluctant to speak the gospel, to get the gospel on our lips. It's not because we need a new method. It's not because we don't know how. It's because Jesus is not looming large in our hearts. That we are not besotted with Jesus. Personally, let's bring this home to Stonegate. 
our church family, why is it that we are not speaking the gospel in this way? We are not inviting people into our life, living as sent people. Why is the gospel not on our lips? For you personally, why, why is this? For us, why is this? Could it be that we are not besotted with Jesus? That, that we've allowed to creep in many competing masters in our life, right? Many competing loves. And see, this is where it gets really easy to hide behind like personality traits and all, you know? Like, well, I'm an introvert, right? Like, I, I do a little better job of showing the gospel, not necessarily sharing the gospel. Like, I, I kind of fumble around with words a little bit as if Moses didn't and God could use him, right? I mean, so, so this, is, this is where it's really easy to hide behind a whole lot of things. I don't know what to say. I'm going to get this all messed up. I mean, I'm going to not only see God not convert them, but I'm going to really push these guys away. I mean, it's going to go terrible. There's a thousand things to hide behind, but I just want you to consider this. You can talk about your kids any day of the week on the spot. Why? Because you're besotted with them. You can talk about your favorite team any day of the week. Why? Because you're besotted with them. You can talk about your favorite hobby any day of the week. Why? You're besotted with it. And what you're besotted with, what you're obsessed with, captivated by, you will speak about. It's just a reality of how we all live. Look at the things that you have shared over the last month. You talk about those things that you are captivated by, fixated on. Whatever that is, is what naturally flows out of your mouth. A couple of years ago, I read this statement by John Stott. And, and the Holy Spirit, I mean, this was like a sledgehammer blow to me when I, when I read this. Here's what John Stott said. The greatest single hindrance to evangelism, gospel on our lips, today is the secret poverty of our own spiritual experience. I want you to think about that. He's saying that the reason the gospel is not on my lips and your lips is because behind closed doors, if we could pry open our heart and look inside, we would see a heart that's in poverty, that's bankrupt spiritually, that's bankrupt in our love and our desire and our affection for Jesus. So, so maybe our problem today is not we need a method. Maybe our problem today is we need Jesus to loom large in us again. Maybe we have become the church in Ephesus in Revelation 2 where we have lost our first love. And, and a lot of competing loves have just kind of sucked themselves into the center of our life. Maybe today we need to repent of that and turn our faith back to Jesus and start pleading that he would be the captivating thing in our heart again, that we would be besotted by him. That This is where it starts. If you want to get the gospel on your lips, this is where it starts. Let me just ask you the question. Do you really, really love Jesus? Do you really love him, right? I mean, are you fixated on him? Are you captivated by him? Does he saturate everything you think, do, feel, say, everything? See, th this is the issue for us. Th this is why the church in our culture doesn't speak the gospel. It's because it's so natural to come in and out of places like this without ever being besotted with Jesus. We can't stay there as a church family. Personally, we can't stay there. So, so maybe God needs to work repentance in us today over this, right? Okay, second thing. So, so this is where it starts. And now this becomes the fuel for, for gospel declaration. The fuel for gospel declaration is a breathtaking view of the gospel. See, when we start to see the gospel as full and robust and big and beautiful and massive and encompassing every part of our life, when we start to see the gospel like this, we start to talk about the gospel in the normal course of our conversation. It just naturally bubbles up in our life. When we start to see, this is how Tim Keller says it, when we start to see that the gospel is not just like the ABCs of Christianity, but it's the A to Z, it's everything. When we start to see that we don't kind of become a Christian and then move past the gospel, but we become a Christian and move deeper into the gospel, 
When we start to see like this, then the gospel becomes something that is bigger to us than just you need to get saved back there in the past. See, when the gospel becomes, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 3, the unsearchable riches of Christ, when you see it like that, as an inexhaustible treasure that you can spend the rest of your life swimming in and never get to the bottom of, that will meet every need of your heart, that will satisfy every craving of your heart, that will quench every thirst of you. When you see it like that, then it naturally starts to bubble up. It naturally starts to come out. And so let me just kind of break this into three little segments here. When we talk about the gospel being the fuel for, for, for this declaration, for this breathtaking view of the gospel, being the fuel for speaking the gospel, here's where this starts, is you have to know the gospel. You have to know it. I mean, like the back of your hand, know it. Like, you know, the Cowboys, like depth chart, right? You have to know it like that without thinking about it. Know it. Like, this is why we say all the time that the most important thing you will know in your life is not a good business plan. It's not where your kids are going to go to school. It's the most important thing you will ever know in your life is the gospel, full, robust, breathtaking view of it. The most important thing you will recall daily in life, remind yourself, preach to yourself daily in life is the gospel. Okay, so we have to know this. Like really, really know it. So let me give you just maybe two different ways to think about the gospel here. One is you can think about it just kind of thematically through the scriptures that you've got God, you've got sin, you've got Jesus and faith. So if you turn like your bulletin over, this is a thematic kind of idea of what the gospel is it's on the back of your bulletin. Here's the idea that it starts with God, the just and gracious God of the universe. He created, he made all things. This is God. It starts with God. He's just and he's gracious. And he looked upon hopelessly sinful people, people who have rebelled against God, stiff-armed God, joyfully run from God. Okay, so, so you've got a just and gracious God, and now you've got sin, hopelessly sinful people, dead in our sin, blinded in our unbelief. And here's, here's God's response. He sends Jesus, God in the flesh, to bear his wrath against sin on the cross and to show his power over sin and the resurrection. So we've got Jesus. He's the solution. He's what you need. The deepest craving of every part of your heart goes to Jesus. That's it. That's the answer. Not just kind of like in Sunday school, but in the daily grind of your life, it's the answer, right? He's the solution, Jesus. And so, and now we've got faith so that all who respond in faith will be reconciled to God forever. Faith is trusting and treasuring Jesus. When we start to see the gospel, we start to know the gospel like this, we start to talk about it. It starts to become something that, that's on our lips, in our life. It's everywhere. You can think about it in four questions. Maybe some questions would maybe help you. Who, who is Jesus? He is God in the flesh. He is fully man. He is the sent one of God. What did Jesus do? He lived a perfect life in place of your imperfect life. He died an undeserving death in place of your deserving death, right? He, he was buried in a tomb, raised from the dead, ascended to the right hand of the Father, sent the Holy Spirit. What must we do? We've got to repent and believe. We've got to trust and treasure Jesus, Give our life to Jesus. What happens when we do that? We are forgiven. Think about this. Past, present, and future. All of your sin forgiven when we do that. We're cleansed from all of that. Given the perfect record of Jesus. We're adopted into the family of God. We get all the blessings of of God. We get all the blessings of being a son of the king. We get all the promises that the king makes to his sons and daughters. I mean, you see this. So we're adopted into the family of God. We're sealed with the Holy Spirit where our eternity is secure. And we're commissioned as missionaries. See, this is what happens to us when we, when we get the gospel. So we have to know the gospel. We have to live in the gospel. It's got to be something that we know like the back of our hand where it can naturally flow from our lips. And I just want to keep encouraging you on this. The resource table that we set up outside is directed. We put it there to try to get in your hand gospel resources to help you in your knowledge of the gospel. Visit it. Buy those books. Get them. Read them. Live in them. Know the gospel. Second thing. Okay, now this is huge. 
is you have got to learn how to apply the gospel consistently apply the gospel to your life. Okay, now we introduced this a couple of weeks ago that there's a broad and a narrow view of the gospel. Narrow view goes like this. The gospel saves us from the penalty of sin. So it saves us from hell and it saves us to God. That's narrow view. Okay, there's also a broad view. See, broad view looks at it and says, the gospel renews every area of your life, every part and piece, every segment and section and side. It renews Every part of your life. Okay, now I want you to think about this. See, if, if, if you have a narrow view of the gospel, the only way you can, the only framework you have to think about the gospel and to ask questions about the gospel and to talk about the gospel is, is questions like this. Have you been saved from the penalty of your sin? Like, if you were to die today, are you going to heaven? See, if you have a narrow view of the gospel, that's the only way we can speak about the gospel. But when we have a broad view of the gospel, and I want you to hear this. We can start to speak the gospel in other ways. Now we can say, ask questions like this. How are you currently being changed by the gospel? How are you currently being saved by the gospel? See, it's not just a present or a a past reality from, from the penalty of sin, but it's a present reality from the ongoing presence of sin. See, the gospel is how you're saved on the front end and it's how you're saved today from sin, from the power of sin. So now we can ask questions like this. How are you being saved by the gospel? And we want you to have great answers to that. We want you to start to live in this, to be applying the gospel to the daily grit and grime of your life. Okay, so I just want to give you some examples of how this has worked out for me over the last month or so. About two weeks ago, I walked into my home and um, I, like I had that glazed over look, you know, like I was there, but I wasn't there. I mean, I, I just had this overwhelming sense of worry, anxiety, of um, of just being overwhelmed. And it primarily revolved around just life at Stonegate Forest. Um, we, we have grown a ton in, a, in one year and, and basically 12 or 13 months now, whatever it is, um, God has added a lot of people to our midst. And these are great problems to have. We will take these sort of problems for the rest of our life. We love problems like this, right? But it, but it's it's good problems to have to work through. So, so we've had to be working through problems like we have eight home groups and we need 20 home groups, right? We, so we have to identify, train, equip, get these leaders ready to plant groups. And, and so we've got all, like we're trying to raise elders to help shoulder the burden of pastoral leadership here. Right? So we're trying to roll out this process, identify men, get men trained, equipped, ready to go for all that. So you've got all of this stuff working. I, I mean, there's like a list of like 19 other things behind that. And so I come through the door and I just have this overwhelming sense of worry and like just that whole thing. And Laura was just really gracious. We sat down and we just, we, we had conversations that went in two different ways. I just want to show you how we tried to apply the gospel to my heart in the middle of this. We, first of all, let me just give you some questions to ask. Here's, here's the questions we started asking. Rodney, if you believed the gospel, would you be responding, thinking, feeling like this? If you've really bought into the gospel, would, would this be how you're thinking, feeling, and responding? And my answer was no. I, I don't think I would be feeling, thinking, responding like this if I bought into the gospel. So then comes the next question. Well, what is it about the gospel that you are not believing? What part of the gospel are you not believing? And so here, here's what we work through. That, that here was my problem. When I looked at Stonegate, I had two problems. One was I viewed myself as the Savior. That if I couldn't do it, if I couldn't get it accomplished, this place was going to fall apart, right? I'm not the Savior of this. Jesus is the Savior of Stonegate, right? I'm not that. So my problem was a belief issue. Rather than believing that Jesus is the Savior, I'm the Savior. Now, here's the other part of my problem. Went in the other direction. When I looked at Stonegate, it had become my functional savior. So, so it was the thing I was looking to to fix me. So when I looked at Stonegate, it was the thing I was looking at to put me together, to solve my problems, to cure my aches. Stonegate is not going to be your savior. Jesus is. It's not going to be my savior. Jesus is. Okay, now, so we asked these questions. If we bought into the gospel what would we be thinking, feeling, and responding like this? If, if the answer is no, then what are we not believing about the gospel? See, my problem was a belief issue. When our life does not reflect the gospel, it's because our hearts are not believing the gospel. 
See, here's the weird thing about believers is we're still unbelievers. Are you seeing that? The believers are still unbelievers. We still don't believe the gospel. We, we get other things in the way of believing that Jesus is really our savior. Okay, let me, let me give you one other, just a grid to maybe think through. The story of God. I, and I'll put a chart up here to kind of help you with this. If you kind of think of the story of God in four words, God created, Genesis 1 and 2. He made everything, right? So everything gets its identity from God. So you got God created and then man rebelled. So you've got rebellion, the fall. This is where the, the people willfully, Adam and Eve willfully rebelled against God, set up their own rule and reign, look for significance, meaning life in other things, not God. God sends Jesus redemption. This is the idea. Jesus is the solution. Jesus puts back together everything that's been broken. Everything has been fractured by the fall. And then you've got restoration. That there will be a day when God brings down a new heavens and a new earth where lions will sleep with lambs, where there is no disease and death and crying and cancer. Right? Okay, this is the story of God in four words and in one minute. Okay, now... Now, if you think about our story now, now this is how we as the people of God are to relate to the story of God. This is what our life should look like. We get our identity from God. So our identity isn't based in what we do, how good we can perform. Our identity isn't based in how much we can produce at work, the, the relationship that we have. Our identity is based in God, given from God. He created us, made us. In the image of God. Okay, so, so we get identity from God. Our problem, the fall, see when we start to live in the story of God, we see that our problem is not external. Our problem is not out there, those people, that situation. Our problem is that we have idols in our heart, that we have sin in us, that we aren't believing the gospel correctly, right? That we have, our, our problem is internal. We have a sin issue. Jesus becomes the solution. So when we look at the solution of every problem of life, we see Jesus is the answer to that problem. On a heart level, Jesus is the cure for the ache that we have. And that we look forward to the new heavens and a new earth. It's our hope. That's where we hope. Right there. Our hope is not in our job. It's not in our marriage. Our hope is in God. Future. Okay, now this is our problem. We'll just kind of lay this over my story of being overwhelmed, full of anxiety. And if you're full of anxiety, this is your story too, right? Okay, so this was my problem. Our situation goes like this. My identity was based in other things. I think it's the next, next go around. Our identity was based in something other than God. So rather than looking to God for my identity, you know what I was looking for it in? In this ministry, in our church. So, so now what was justifying me was how well our church was put together, not on what God has done for me. So my identity is all messed up. I had identity amnesia, forgot who I was. Okay, and then here was my problem. The problem was I felt like our church wasn't put together very well in a couple of areas. That we had some problems in some areas. And so here was the solution for me. I'm the savior. I've got to go fix this. I've got to feel the weight of all this. I've got to go do this. I've got to go perform. I've got to just grit this out and do it, right? So, so this is, this is my problem. I'm the savior. Okay. And then I, I'm looking to a, a different hope. My hope is in this place, not in God, not in what God's going to do. Okay, so I had to take a step back and say this. Man, I've got to redirect my identity. My identity is not in this place. Whether we make it or not, whether we do well or not, whether we're put together or not, my identity is in God. The problem is that I have made this an idol. Jesus is the solution. So I have to turn from my idolatry, from my sin and and reaffirm, repent and say, God, you are the Savior. See, this has got to be normal, fair in our life. We've got to learn how to speak the gospel to our own hearts, how to apply it. Let let me give you an illustration with Laura. She's not here today, so she's fair game. Um, A couple of weeks ago, this has been actually a couple of months ago, she got a phone call and the lady on the other line was not happy with Laura. Okay, She, She was not happy at something she had done and she was letting Laura know about she was not happy with Laura. And so, and I just watched Laura in the, in the midst of this conversation. I mean, just the tone changed, the demeanor changed. She hung up the phone. She's devastated, right? Okay, now, now we start to ask these questions. If, if you've really bought into the gospel, would you be feeling, thinking, responding this way? Answer, no. Then what are you not believing about the gospel? And, and here's what we try to pry into. That I'm not believing that, that, that Christ 
has perfectly performed for me, that God is gracious, he has sent Jesus, and I am fully and finally approved based on what Jesus has done for me, not on my performance for people. You see this? And and so she's not believing that God is her identity, that her identity is found in what this person thought of her. Fear of man, the approval of people. A lot of us are there. That our identity is wrapped up in this. We live for the approval of people. And so we have to reaffirm and repent of that and say, okay, no, I've got to believe that Jesus is the Savior. My identity is in him. He's the solution to that. Take it creation, fall, redemption, restoration. The problem is her identity was wrapped in someone, not Jesus. The problem is that they disapproved of her. The solution was for her to do anything and everything possible to regain approval. See, the solution is not Jesus. So we had to repent of that. The solution is Jesus. So we have to learn how to apply these things, how to get the gospel into the grit and grime of our life. You see this? So, okay, now, now this is the last one, and we'll kind of close this up here. But when we start to see the gospel applied to everyday life, then we start to learn how to contextualize the gospel. We start to learn how to speak the gospel in the language of the people of your neighborhood of your workplace. See, there your neighbor is probably not sitting there today asking, I wonder I wonder how it is that I can avoid hell and get God. I wonder how I can do that. That's probably not what they're thinking right now. But there's a million things they are thinking. Every person on the planet is looking for something to fix them. Everyone So we'll run to pleasure, we'll run to possessions, we'll run to power, we'll run to a new job, to a bigger paycheck, to a bigger house, to a new gadget, to a family, to kids. Everybody is looking for something to fix them. And so here's what we get to do to contextualize. We get to invite people into our life, get to know them, listen to their story, and then we get to see what are they depending on to fix them. See, our own, like, I, I, our only question is not, what happens when you die? Our, we've got more questions like, what are you going to live for? I mean, you want to live for a good savior, a good master. So we get to see, we get to invite them in, learn the idols in their heart and what they're living for, what they're looking to for life, meaning satisfaction. And here's what we get to gently and appropriately say. Jesus is the only savior. That's it. You can look to it in your work, but your work won't fix you. You can look to it in your family, but your family won't fix you. You can look for it in a relationship, but that relationship won't fix you. Jesus is what fixes people, right? So we start to learn how to speak this in the context of of the people around us, their language. Okay, and, and we'll kind of wrap it up with this. Here's what brings urgency to gospel declaration. We become urgent in speaking the gospel when we have a deep love for people. In Romans 9, I think Paul just makes a real interesting, I think you just get to see like a glimpse of his heart. First couple of verses, he, he basically says this. He's talking about his brothers and sisters, Jewish people. He's a Jew talking about Jewish people. And he says this, I wish, like I, I would go here. I, I wish that I myself was accursed and cut off from Christ. If, if my brothers and sisters, my fellow Jews, could get the gospel, if they would get Jesus. And I just want to ask you, does your heart bleed for people like that? Does your heart bleed for people in that sort of a way? Is it broken for people? I mean, do you have this heart of Paul where the gospel has so transformed you, given you this great love for God and this enormous love for people where you think about this reality, people are perishing Apart from Jesus, the way God shines light into them is the people of God declaring the gospel of God. Does your heart break for them in that sort of a way? Does it plead with God on their behalf that God would save them? That God might even use your lips and your life to do it? See, when we start to get this deep love for people, it gives us this urgency. It gives us this boldness, right? Like we start to see that that the risk of rejection is sometimes worth taking. We start to see that, that our love of comfort is not as big as our love for them. So it gives us this boldness. 
And can we just pray, just as a people, that we would have this sort of a broken heart for our neighborhoods, for our families, for people around us, our coworkers that have been blinded to the gospel. They just can't see it. That we would start praying passionately and fervently for them. And as you pray for the Stonegate families, it relates to this issue. We'll close it with Acts 4. I want to give you something. I want to encourage you to pray for us in this. Pray for your home group. Pray for us as a family that we would become this sort of missionary people. And this would be a great thing for you to pray. Acts 4.31. Luke says this. And when they, these early Christians, when they had believed or when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Maybe we could just start to pray that God would fill the people of Stonegate with his Holy Spirit in such a way that we could not help but speak the gospel. That our hearts would be so alive to God Our hearts would be so captivated by God. Our hearts would be beaming with such joy that comes from the gospel that it would just naturally overflow into our mouths, into our lips, through our language. And we'd be that sort of people. Amen? Let's pray. God, I know that um, today, just in my own heart, Um, there needs to be good, authentic repentance that happens. As I think about, as I just use the gospel on my lips as as just a gauge for for my heart's affections for you, I can just see how I, I I need more of you. I need to be more captivated. I need to be more fixated. I need to be more gripped by you. So God, I pray with the power of your spirit that you would do that in me. And God, I pray that for our brothers and sisters here. God, I pray that we would repent of allowing lesser loves to worm their way into the central place of our heart. God, will you, will you grant us that sort of repentance today? Will you give us that today? God, I pray that you would give us hearts broken and battered and bleeding for the hearts or for the, for the souls of the people around us that you tell us in in 2 Corinthians 4 are perishing. God, will you give us that? And God, will you give us this breathtaking view of the gospel? God, help us to know it, to be able to apply it, and then to be able to speak it, contextualize it into into our neighborhoods, into the lives of our coworkers, into the lives of our family. God, and we need grace for this. God, help us. We need grace for this. So as we just sing this last song, God, I pray that you would start to stir in us this big view of you. We would stand in awe of you. We would stand low before you. And God, it's in your good and gracious name that we ask this. And it's for your glory's sake. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.